this morning, um, I was reflecting on my time away, and I, you sort of not only reflect on the Bible, but you, I sort of have a tendency to reflect on myself as well, and I know this about me. I am more prone to look to the eternal than I am to the temporary. I am more prone to um, talk about the spiritual than I am uh, the physical, because I guess I've always felt like there are a lot of organizations around uh, America, around the world, around Florida, around Oviedo, that can help out in so many different areas of the physical, but only the church has the answers for the soul. Now, the question is, why is it that we are sitting in church Sunday after Sunday and maybe growing up at a church like this one, where hundreds of people receive Christ into their heart, maybe even thousands over a period of time, and then you wonder, well, yeah, but what is our, what is our church doing for the community? And you probably are, are sitting on the side of the physical uh, more than the spiritual, a little bit different from me. But I get, the theory is, is this, you know, the old story. If you, uh, if you give a person a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a person how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Well, if you give a, a person a, a cup of water, they have a cup of water right then. But if you help them dig a well, they can have water for a long, long time. And the idea has always been, hey, if you receive Christ into your heart and life, it's going to make a difference in your life. It's going to take the homeless person you know, off the street. It's going to give hope to those who are facing death. It's going to give, give light to those who need to know what their purpose is in life. It, it's a life-changing type of decision you make to follow Christ. And it, it works, or does it? I mean, how effective are we in the spiritual in really making a difference for the soul? Because when people ask the question, yeah, but what difference does it make? And here's what's happening, I think. We're, we're growing up in church, and we're saying to ourselves, well, you know, I got saved, I got baptized, and, and then I got into a small group, and then I, I grew up in church, went through the children's ministry, the youth ministry, and, and you know, I, I see this going on, but what difference is it really making? Somehow there's a disconnect. You see people in the church, they're all on fire for the Lord, and, and they love Jesus, and they're, and they're doing all this work for God, but yet in your own heart you're thinking, why are they doing that? I mean, why, why are they going to that kind of degree? Why, is, why don't I see what they're seeing? And hence we maybe have the problem, is that we're not really sensing the presence of God in our life. Practicing the presence of God is going to get you through a lot of tough stuff. If you believe in practicing the presence of God in your life, it'll make the biggest difference. The biggest missing gift as we start the new series of messages this morning, the missing gifts of Christmas. What is it does Christmas promise not delivering, it doesn't seem like? And how can we see them delivered? This morning, I want to open up to Hebrews chapter 2. And this is not a Christmas uh, message at all. And by the way, let me just say this. While I was gone, we also joined together with the vine to feed the people, uh, the homeless and the needy at Thanksgiving time. We believe in that. We're going to raise, raise money for other things here during Christmas. We have the Haiti shoeboxes going out. I really do believe in all that. But I, I just really believe that if a person really receives Christ, has the presence of God in their life, 
they're going to be able to help themselves as well as well as for eternity. And so with that in mind, we look at Hebrews chapter 2. As we open up this passage, please understand, again, this is not a Christmas passage, probably a good thing because you know all those passages perhaps. You've heard a lot of messages and a lot of Bible studies on those passages. And so as we open this book, this is, this is a letter written to Jewish people. And the Jewish people back in this day were being persecuted and being rejected because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And so the temptation for them was to mix Christianity with the Old Testament temple worship, with the Old Testament laws, so their, their families and the culture around them would not think them weird by worshiping Jesus. And the writer was warning them, and he says, look, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Abraham. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is just better. Don't turn back. Don't drift back. Don't turn back to where you were going before. And in, beginning in verse 5 of this chapter, he begins to then look at the founder of our faith. I want to read verses 14, however, through 18. It says, since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who were fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offsprings of Abraham. Therefore, he had said, to be made like his brothers in every aspect of respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, if you are a scholar, you understood everything I just said. If you're not, if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, you probably didn't understand anything I just said. Because this is a book difficult to understand. It's like reading someone else's mail. It's written to Jewish Christians and many of us are not familiar enough with the Old Testament and hanging over this book the whole time is temple worship. And so as we look at this and understand something very, very important to us, and that is it's difficult on our own impossible to sense the presence of God in our life on a regular basis. And in fact, any basis at all. And so what I want us to see this morning in this passage is three things. One, the problem of approachability with God, the provision of access, and then the power of our acceptance in the Lord here during this Christmas season. First of all, I want us to see the problem that we have with approachability. As I said, underlying all this is the Old Testament worship. Now, in the Old Testament worship, they had a temple. Here's a picture of Solomon's temple. And Solomon's temple on the outside, the outer court, was where the Jewish people made sacrifices for sin. Then you had the building, and inside the building, you had the holy place. That's where the priests went. And then inside, inside the building, toward the back, you see a wall there. They had uh, what they call the, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, pictured here, was there. Notice the two handles on each side. Because if anyone touched the actual ark itself, they would die. Because this is where the presence of God was lying here in sitting in the Old Testament times. So here was God. Here, here was the seat of God right here. 
here's where the Lord was, and no one could touch it. In fact, there was a veil in between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in this veil, no one could go behind the veil and even look, really, at the Ark of the Covenant, but certainly not get near it. But except for one person a year, the high priest. The high priest, as mentioned here in this passage, could go behind the veil one time a year, sprinkle the blood of a goat on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel for the coming year. Now, they would put a rope around the priest because if the priest accidentally touched the ark, he would die. It doesn't matter whether it's accident or not. He would just die. He would die, and they could not go behind the veil to get him, so they'd pull him out. Or they would pull him out of it if it ever had happened. And so you can see the unapproachability of God. You look in the Bible. When he appeared before Moses, he appeared as a burning bush. When he appeared to Abraham, he was a smoking furnace. Israel, a pillar of fire. He was a, it was a frightening thing. It was a, it was a terrifying thing to come before the presence of God. No one could touch the ark. In fact, one guy touched the ark. He was, they were in a river. He was trying to steady the ark. He touched it, and he died immediately. It was a terrifying thing because of the Old Testament. Why? Because of the sin in our life. God made us in the image of God, of, of himself. Sin marred that image. It said, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. We find in the Old Testament that we, are, we were like, we were made in the image of God. Sin marred that image, and he is beyond us now. Not now, but in the Old Testament, at that present time, he was beyond us. We could not touch him. We could get near him. When Moses saw the Lord in the burning bush, he said, you cannot look upon my face or you're going to die. He said, you can look upon my back, my hind parts, it says in the King James Version. But you cannot look upon my face. It's too glorious. You're not like me. So we were not like God. We were, sin had separated us from him. Theologically, sometimes it's called the hiddenness of God. He would come as a consuming fire. Even in the book of Hebrews, if I can just flip over here, I'll read you a verse in chapter 10. I think it's in verse 29. I hope I'm, I'm right. The Bible says that it ends up by saying he's a consuming fire. And so we look at the Old Testament times and say, man, tough times. You could not even appear before God. So what happened? Well, we look, secondly, at what Christmas is all about. The very first step of Christmas is located right here in verse 14 in the provision of access. Let's read it. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The Bible tells us that the message of Christmas is that he became flesh and blood. We could not be like him, so he became like us. We were separated from him. We, we weren't in the same ballpark. We, we weren't even on the, not only the same page, we were reading the same book. There was nothing there, nothing about us that we could approach God at all. And so God approached us. God became flesh and blood. He, he got his hands dirty. He put his knuckles in the ground. And because of that, now we can have some access to God. Now, who is, who is Jesus? Let's establish that. 
Hebrews chapter one. I'm just going to read some verses to you and uh, you can follow along with me there in chapter one. He says, long ago and many times in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Wow. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become much superior to angels, as in the name, he has inherited more excellent than theirs. Or to which angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be uh, to him a father, and he shall be with me a son. He says, you've never seen, he never said that to an angel. Verse 8, but for the son, he says, and here it is, to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Right here in the book of Hebrews, what he was pulling from was the fact that Jesus Christ is God. We've read it, uh, maybe, maybe you've read it several times in the book of John. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, whatever the Word is, he's God, whatever he is. Well, he explains that in the next few verses. He says, and the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. Say that with me. The word became, the word became and dwelt among us. He tabernacled, he templed among us. And we have seen his glory. Now we can see the glory. Why can we see the glory? Because we couldn't see to have the glory before. We couldn't get near the glory before. It was a frightening thing. It was a terrifying thing. Now we can see it. We, he's there. And he is God. Now, the Bible says, for example, several times in the Bible, people say, well, where does Jesus say that he was actually God? All throughout the New Testament. All throughout the New Testament. In fact, he, he came up to somebody and said, go, your sins are, are forgiven. And if you read that passage, the leaders that were against Jesus, um, they got really upset about that. And the reason they were getting so upset is because they explain, says, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Just from that, forgiving people of sins? Yeah. Why? Because the person he was forgiving did not really offend the human part of Jesus. In other words, he didn't directly offend Jesus. He offended God. You see, for me, for, for example, if somebody were to say, God, a person on this side of the room, gossiped about person on, on this side of the room, and I would go up to this person, I'd say, look, I forgive you. What do you mean you forgive me? I didn't, I didn't say anything about you. Yeah, but I forgive you. I, I have no right to forgive. I have no grounds for forgiveness because this person has not offended me. In order to forgive some, the, the person who is forgiving must be the one who has been offended. And the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. All sins are against God. All sins are against Jesus. All throughout the New Testament, it says Jesus is God. But Jesus also became man and that is the message of the New Testament. He said to Joseph in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Say that with me. God with us. He put his hands again in the dirt. Here's the connection. Here's the presence of God in our life. Notice what it says here in our uh, text. He says, Likewise, he partook of the same things. Now, he became flesh and blood and partook of the same 
things. We need a Savior that understands who we are and where we are. We need a, a wonderful counselor, as Isaiah 9 says, that understands what counselor is not a, how, how can a person be a counselor if he's not gone through at least something like it himself? Notice what it says uh, back up in verse 10. For it is fitting, underline that word, that he for whom and by whom all things exist, he's talking about Jesus again, and bringing many sons of glory, which make the founder, the author, the founder, the pioneer of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, this verse bothered me for years. Now, Jesus was already born perfect. How did his suffering make him perfect? Oh, we get the clue here in the beginning of verse 10, fitting. He became the perfect fit through suffering. He became our, high, our potential, as it were, our high priest. He was able to die on the cross for our sins, make a propitiation for our sins. That means he took away the wrath of God. He took the unapproachableness of God away by dying on the cross for our sins. He was made the perfect fit. Now, how was he the perfect fit? Well, not only was he perfect as he died on the cross, but now you go through a sense of loneliness and you're alone. You say, God, where are you? And you know Jesus was alone. He spent many hours alone. He was so alone, in fact, there was nobody like him on the earth at the time, nor ever. You say, well, he had his disciples. His disciples were not like him. He was alone. Well, Jesus didn't under, where was God when my father prematurely passed away? Good question. Same place he was when Jesus' father earthly father, Joseph, prematurely passed away. You know, we don't read anything about Joseph anywhere in the life of Jesus. It's believed traditionally that he was long passed away, and that's one tradition that has to be pretty much true. He died. Jesus suffered loss. Jesus suffered temptation. Read about Matthew chapter 4 with the temptations in the wilderness. He, does, he, he uh, discovered what rejection felt like and persecution felt like and pain, physical pain and hunger and homelessness. He was a fit for us. He can understand where we are. And that's why God, who knows we need, crave within the inner soul the presence of him in our life, is more than willing to come and help us experience that because he made his son fit for the task, fit for the occasion. We find that Jesus came and he suffered and he died. Colossians, it says, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Then it says, therefore in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was made like us so that he might become a merciful, a counselor, a merciful person and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. Propitiation. What's it talking about here? Well, the beginning of it was Christmas, where Jesus became flesh and blood. The physical 
become suddenly important. You see, it's not that the physical is not important at all. It is. If you look at Jesus had a body, not only that, but the Bible says in the end times we're going to have glorified bodies. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. There's going to be physical things. There's going to be matter. There's going to be physical things that we still deal with on an everyday basis in eternity. He became flesh and blood, and then he lived his life 33 and a half years perfect on earth, suffering through what we were suffering, including verse 18, for because he himself suffered when we, he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How does he help us? Through his presence. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But he died on the cross for our sins to give us the way to God so we could be in his presence, so we can have a sense of belonging to him because God was unapproachable before. But now he's approachable. How? The Bible says he died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again on the third day. Then he told his disciples, he says, you know, it's important that I go away because unless I go away, I can't send my Holy Spirit to you. And so you rejoice that, hey, you're around me all the time. Great, wonderful. I'm going to show you that I'm going to be with you for always, for all of eternity, by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. So you have the Holy Spirit all the time. You say, well, I don't feel like it. I know you don't. But you do. The potential is more than there. The expectation, in fact, is really there. As we look at this, we suddenly are facing the veil in the temple, separating us from this awesome, consuming fire, God. As soon as Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the fingers of God tore that veil in two. And now we have 24-7 access to the throne of God. Boy, it all started with a baby. You know, a little baby. An innocent little baby. God didn't come as a consuming fire. He didn't come as a cloud in the sky. He didn't come as a burning bush. He didn't come as a hurricane. He came as a baby, not even a toddler. You know, toddlers got their own agenda, you know, oftentimes. He came as a baby. Listen, if you pick up a baby, a newborn, and that newborn cries with you, it's not you. Something else is going on. A baby just receives everybody. Everybody. And so here's this consuming fire coming as a baby. And because of that, now we have access to God. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, understand what's going on. No access to God. You have to have a rope to get behind the Holy of Holies one time a year. And and we're expecting to get to God, oh, just because I live a better life. I'm expecting to get to God just because I'm a very talented person. I'm expecting to get to God because, um, you know, I'm a good husband or I'm a a good father. I'm doing better. No, the veil of the temple is there for us. In fact, in Corinthians it says that the veil is still there to those who do not believe. And so there becomes this one way, the one door to heaven. You say, well, uh, pastor, that's just kind of bigoted. That's narrow-minded of you. It's really not narrow-minded. It's just a different 
diagnosis of the problem. Let me give you an example. I'm sure we have, I know we have some dentists here, don't raise your hands, but uh, I've gotten to know some dentists here in our church, and you know, I, I like to joke around, and sometimes you just throw out a joke, and you don't even realize there's a connection there. And so I, I said to one, I said, I'd rather have a root canal. And he said, yeah, everybody would rather have a root canal. So, you know, you think about it. How many of you, raise your hand, if you really, unless you're a dentist, you really love going to the dentist. Anybody here? No, I mean, it's always, oh, I, I see one. Okay, great, great. Must be the hygienist or something, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but suppose you go to the dentist. I mean, thank God for him. You know, you've got a toothache. It's killing you, you know. You just, you can't even, boy, when your tooth hurts, your whole body hurts, Right? So you go and you say, Doc, what's wrong? Well, this doctor doesn't want to be hated, I mean, rejected. And so he says, you know, I think if you floss, a little, they always say floss. If you, if you floss a little bit more, take a few aspirin, you're going to be all right. Okay, so you go home, you floss a little bit more, you take a few aspirin, it gets worse. Go to another dentist, he says, oh, now what you need is one of these, one of these toothbrushes that, that vibrate the whole time. And now if you just get one of those, It'll, you're going to be all right in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks go by. Diagnosis, hmm, not good. Therefore, the cure is not working. Then you go to a dentist. He says, no, you've got an abscess. Now, please, I'm not a dentist. Don't ruin my, don't, don't ruin my illustration here. But you've got an abscess. And if you don't do something about that tooth, we're going to have to have some surgery. We're going to have to take that tooth out. Boy, you've got gum disease now, and all of it's settled in, and you're going to have to have surgery. Surgery? I'm not going to have surgery. I want another opinion. I think you're narrow-minded because you think surgery is the only thing that's going to cure me. Well, it's the only thing that's going to help. No, no, no. You're, you're bigoted. You're, you're narrow-minded. No, he wouldn't be narrow-minded. He would just have a different diagnosis of the problem. Now, most of the people in the world would say, out in the world, would say, hey, look, your problem is you're just not disciplined enough. Or your problem is uh, your family atmosphere. Or your problem is, is your community. Your problem, you know, if you just get into a church, you'll have better community. And it'll rub off on you, you'll be a lot better. A different diagnosis. The Bible teaches us we're all sinners separated from the, uh, the, the glory of God. The glory of God means the perfection of God, the glory that, that is in the Shekinah glory, the, the glory we're talking about behind the veil. You're separated. You don't belong to God. You're, you're not like God. That's the problem. Your sins have separated you from God, and God is a holy God, and you'll never approach God. You'll never get there unless there's a door to get there. And there's only one. There was no doors, none. And Jesus came along and said, I'll pay the price. I'll die on the cross to be that door. Different diagnosis, therefore a different cure. It's not, it's not narrow-minded. It's a different diagnosis of the problem. So you're sitting here this morning. And, and you're trying to get better. How's that working? You're trying to, to, to turn over a new leaf and do the right thing. How's that working? No matter how much we try to do that, the veil's still there. And the only one that can tear through the veil is Jesus with the cross of Christ. And he came, flesh and blood, in order to do just that. So how does this fit together? For the presence of God in our life right now. Let's look at the power of our acceptance. I want to look back up in verse 14. He says, then, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, 
that, there's a reason here. There's a reason that through death that was coming 33 and a half years later, he might destroy the one who is, has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver of all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Man, it's tough. The, now this is not an exhaustive list, the reason he came, but it's pretty exhaustive as you see what the ramifications are. He says, I've come. I've come to be flesh and blood. I've come to tear the veil. I've come to die on the cross for two reasons. Destroy the works of the devil and to destroy the fear of death and death itself in your life. That's it. I've come for that. What does it mean? The veil was torn. He has become, Jesus became a baby. He became vulnerable for us. And then we find here in the scripture that as he died on the cross and he gave us life, the Bible tells us that he has destroyed the works of the devil. One, one day, the Bible says when he comes back again, he comes back in his full glory, he comes back again, the rapture of the church takes place, and then he comes back seven years later, he comes to this earth, the devil gets thrown in the lake of fire, and the devil is destroyed forever and ever, but even now, he is destroying his works. And how is he doing that? What works? Anything that has to do with the ways of death. Anything that has to do with the temptation to sin. He is destroying those things. He came in order to destroy those things. Are you, this morning, tempted in a certain way? The presence of God can, can give you victory over that. How so? Well, when you and I have the Spirit of God living within us, and we practice the presence of God in our life. We, we really take time to pray. Take time to read the Bible. The devil is the whole time is telling you, don't do that. You know, look, you're a man, you're a person of action. You need to go out and do this, this, and this, and this. You don't, need, you don't, need, you don't have time to sit around reading the Bible. And one verse, okay, you've read a couple of verses, that's enough. Just go on. I mean, it was, it was fine. Probably didn't do you a whole lot of good. But you never know. The word never comes, what does the Bible say? Never come, comes back to your void. And so you didn't feel anything because you didn't take time to really ask God to reveal his presence to you. But it's okay. Just move on. Jesus came to destroy that. Because once you feel the presence of God, you see the value. One of the reasons why we do not take time for the presence of God in our life, we don't see the value. We just don't see it. We think, hey, look, you know, I got saved, I got baptized, I'm going to church, how much do you want? And you don't see the difference. And so we need to go out and do this kind of ministry and this kind of, and this ministry over here, and we do. Because this ministry, I mean, you can talk about it all you want to, Pastor, just doesn't make a difference. I'm, I mean, I appreciate the fact that I'm going to heaven, but I don't feel anything. Have you ever felt the presence of God in your life? If you have, you know the value. But if you haven't, you've never taken the time, you don't see the value there. And he says, look, the value is you're going to be able to overcome temptation. How is that? Well, if I've got the Spirit of God living in my life, I've got the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control, plus... 
the sense of the presence of God in my life. I feel like God's there. And if God's there, I can take on any problem. If I just feel like God is there, I, I, I can tackle any temptation. Why? Because I, I look over here at this temptation, and I think to myself, well, wow, Satan says this would be great, this would be wonderful, you ought to do that. No, I'd have to give up the presence of God in my life. You know, I, I wouldn't have that feeling anymore, that sense that he's there. I'm not going to give that up for that. He destroys the works of the devil. The presence of God will also conquer the fears of the unknown, the death, loss. We can kid ourselves all we want, but we are motivated, tremendously motivated, not only things like bitterness and hate and love, but also just fear. What if? What if this happens? What if that happens? I've got to do this so this won't happen. The fears, of, the fears of the unknown, that's what death's all about. It's about the unknown things of life. And so when you practice the presence of God, you think, God, you know, it's so much easier just to put you on the throne. And if you're on the throne, I can't lose. I mean, if God be for me, who can be against me? By simply practicing the presence of God. Why? We don't. We don't see the value. And because sometimes sin in our life, we don't want to get too close. We get too close. It's like, kind of like going to church, you know, and boy, your, your sin is identified, maybe by, by, by pastor, but certainly by the Holy Spirit. And, and you feel bad. Boy, who wants to feel bad? So you go in the presence of God, and what that makes you do is deal with that. But if you don't want to deal with it, then maybe you don't go. But it's robbing you, robbing you of what you can have, what you can experience in the Lord. God's been unapproachable. But now we have access through Jesus Christ. And that access includes eternal life. But that access also includes this life. The presence of God in this life. God with us. My son, one of my sons, has left uh, this church, being on staff of this church, to um, start a church up in North Carolina. And um, I can remember um, Brandon, when he was younger, having always had a plan. You know, you know, he's one of those guys, always had, you know those guys, always have a plan, you know. And so he sort of had his plan uh, figured out for his life, and uh, he was going to be this athlete, and he's very good at that. But he broke his leg at the kneecap when he was a sophomore in high school and could not play the, the regular team sports uh, anymore safely. And so he took up golf more, and he went to Liberty University to play golf. And so he had, you know, he had his girlfriend that he thought you know, he would marry and all that. And so he had everything planned out. Within a week, all of it just blew up, gone, within a week. And um, he became a little bit, maybe, a recluse for a week or two. His friends, who were maybe struggling with the presence of God, period, in their life, uh, some of his friends were worried about him. You know, wow, he, he just, he leaves ball games to go and, and read the Bible because he, he just wants to get close to God or something. And he was searching for the next plan, for the next will of God in his life. God, where do I go now? I'm a junior in college. Where do I, what do I do? What's the plan? 
He called me up one night after searching for a few weeks. He said, Dad, I want to run something by you. God's kind of been speaking to my heart here, and um, I've been seeking the will of God, and you've preached on that before, and I believe in doing that. But maybe the greatest gift that I can have is Jesus himself. He said, through all this, I found the real presence of Jesus himself. It's the greatest gift. Changed his life. So God has done so much to get near you. What are you doing to get near him? He's done so much to get close to you. What are we doing to get close to him? Boy, the abundant life is just there for the taking. And okay, it's kind of moment by moment, day by day, but it's there for the taking. Who's going to take it? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and say, well, <clears throat> Pastor, I, I don't even know that I'm a believer or not. I mean, after all, I do respect Jesus, though. And God, you know, I know Jesus was a good teacher. And I think about Jesus every once in a while, especially during Christmas and Easter. I want to share with you what John Stott, a theologian from the last century, would say, say to you. That would say, you know, that's not, it's not rational to think that way. And here's, here's his point. If you study the New Testament, you will find there are three reactions to Jesus Christ. Number one, people ran from him because they, they didn't want any, any, part of their, any part of their life being exposed before him. Number two, they hated him. as the people that killed him. Or number three, they worshiped him. A lukewarm response was never an option. Here was God in the flesh performing miracles in people's lives, living a holy life. Even his words were like ones of great authority like they've never heard. There was no way that you could just take it lukewarmly. Oh, he's a good teacher. No, you, you had to grapple with the real question. Who is Jesus? What did he do? How am I going to respond? And people responded one of three ways. They ran from it, they killed him, they hated him, or they worshiped him. Now, which one, which category do you fit? Jesus Christ came to die for you, God with us, to be with you for all of eternity, and to be with you now. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.